and welcome the History of the Great War Premium episode number 35, the one in which we talk about China. China would officially join the war in 1917, but its interactions with the war began far before that date. At the Paris Peace Conference, the British statesman Balfour would claim that the Chinese involvement in the war had involved neither the expenditure of a single shilling nor the loss of a single life. This was criminally incorrect, and Balfour knew it, but it was part of a concerted effort by the British delegation at the conference to downplay the Chinese contributions to the war effort. Today we will be looking at those contributions, and hopefully putting them in proper context. The Chinese had been obsessed with being allowed to join the table of nations around the world, something that had been repeatedly denied to them by the Western powers in the decades before the war. When the war started, Chinese leaders hoped that it would be their chance to change that situation and to make big changes to how other countries viewed China. This would be the impetus for two important events. The first was the creation of the Chinese Labor Corps, which would send tens of thousands of men to Western Europe. The second was China's entry into the war in 1917, followed by attempts to send a military expedition. All that China would gain from these efforts was a betrayal at the Paris Peace Conference by countries that were technically their allies. The story of these events is on the docket for today, and we will start with a very brief history of China before the war, and then we will discuss what led China to join the war. We will also be sure to give some time to the Chinese Labor Corps, which would be, at the, which would be the country's most noticeable and concrete contribution to the war effort. Then we will discuss very briefly what happened at the Paris Peace Conference. China's place at Versailles was important enough that it will have its own episodes in the mainline series, and I'll be holding most discussion about that story for later, but we will talk about it a little bit today. In the decades before 1900, the relationship between China and the Western countries was one of great imbalance. The Western countries, with most of Europe included in that list, all sought to take advantage of China, and this came in a variety of forms, like European countries taking possessions of various areas of China itself, or the British using the tea trade to introduce opium into the country. The Opium War in 1839 was precipitated by a concerted effort by the East India Company to funnel as much opium as possible into China to make up for the trade imbalance that had been created by the tea trade. The problem for the company was that Europe was obsessed with tea, as they should be because tea is amazing. But the Chinese were not initially really importing much from China, and this created a big trade imbalance with gold and silver flowing into China, but not then back out of the country as well. Opium was their solution. By getting as much of China as possible addicted to opium, they had found something that they could funnel back into China to extract that gold and silver out of the country and rebalance the trade. This would eventually lead to the Opium Wars, which I won't go into here, but if you really want a good overview of those events in China, I highly recommend the China History Podcast by Laszlo Montgomery. 
He does a pretty deep dive into the Opium Wars and that era of Chinese history that I thought was really good. While the history of China in the 1800s is important to understand, their actions in the 20th century, I think the real turning point where the story of Chinese involvement with World War I begins is actually in 1900. It's during this year that the Boxer Rebellion occurred in China. This rebellion was a massive uprising of peasants, most of them coming from famine-stricken areas. They were rebelling not just against their government, but also the involvement of foreigners in Chinese affairs, which was a very valid concern. And there was widespread concern among many Chinese people that foreign interests in China would eventually destroy the country. The Boxers took that fear and turned it into violence, culminating in the siege of the foreign legations in Peking. This violent action then prompted an international response and the imposition of the Boxer Indemnity afterwards. This indemnity was publicly called a punishment against China for the rebellion, but in reality it was an organized effort by countries around the world to cripple the Chinese economy and keep it dependent on the West. The total cost would be about 67 million pounds, which was greater than the normal annual tax revenues of the Chinese government. It was to be paid over the course of 40 years, with 4% interest on that money. They had to pay out various amounts of money to 13 different countries, and even in 1916, the amount was 304 British pounds every month. On top of these payments, there were payments for various other loans that had been signed by various Chinese government officials along the way. This list was lengthy and topped by a £25 million loan in 1913. These loans, crippling to the Chinese government due to the payments required, kept the Chinese dependent on other countries and kept them desperate for money. This was very important for the Western powers and some Eastern states as well, like Russia and Japan, who wanted to continue to take advantage of the Chinese and their less-than-optimal situation. During all of these struggles that led up to and then after the Boxer Rebellion, the Qing Dynasty maintained power, something it had been doing for almost 300 years. However, in 1912, it all came crashing down, and that process began in 1908 when the reigning emperor and empress died, leaving behind a two-year-old emperor. Child emperors, even with effective regencies, even in the best of situations, are risky, and in this case it would cause the end of the Qing. In October 1911, an uprising began in Wuchang, part of the important industrial territory of Wuhan. Events spiraled out of control until the emperor, now just five years old, was forced to abdicate. At first, Dr. Sun Yat-sen was named as president, being the natural choice since he was the leader of the largest anti-imperial group in China. However, he would then abdicate in favor of General Huan Shakai, uh, who would then lead the republic until the war started. The foundation of the republic brought some political changes to China, including the move to allow 10% of the male population of China to vote, which was pretty high compared to really any other country in Asia at this time. Even though the previous government had been overthrown, all of its problems did not magically disappear. The country was still deeply in debt to foreign powers, there were still a laundry list of internal problems, and there were still very powerful regional armies, which at times would completely ignore central authority. This regional army setup had been used by the emperor, and while it had allowed for power to be projected around the country, it was also a system that allowed for regional rebellions to happen pretty frequently. While the republic would not be perfect, it would be the one that would lead the country into World War I. When the war started, the Chinese were not concerned, and were in fact excited about the possibilities. 
they were quick to declare their neutrality, something that could only happen because the new Chinese government had been officially recognized by European countries in 1913. Even with the framework of neutrality, China hoped to be able to contribute to the Allied war effort, and therefore bring it to greater prominence on the world stage. The eventual outcome of these attempts would be the Chinese Labor Corps, but before that happened, China would have to play the more traditional role of a neutral country. During these actions, they still heavily favored the Allies, or at least they thought that they were. The Allies were sometimes less than thrilled with how that manifested, especially around how much the Chinese controlled or didn't control of German commercial activities in the country. However, the British leaders would have believed that the official neutrality of China was still beneficial to the British war effort, with British uh, Representative Sir John Jordan saying in late 1914 that China had entirely failed in her duties as a neutral. There are British, German, and French vessels interned at some half a dozen or more ports, and there are 61 German belligerents confined at Nanking. Of course, there was a good deal of laxity, but we have benefited by that far more than the enemy. While the Chinese were officially neutral when the war started, there were some attempts to join the war on the side of the Entente, but such efforts were always met by Japanese opposition. In this opposition, the Japanese were trying to make sure that they were the only country in the region to join the winning side of the war. This would allow them to dictate the structure of the post-war Far East, especially since they were so close with the British. Japan, running on a high from their experiences in the war in 1914 and their relationship with European countries, presented the 21 demands to the Chinese in January 1915. The list of demands pretty much sought to make China a vassal state of Japan, with the Japanese hoping that the rest of the world would be too caught up in the events of the war to notice. In their book, Betrayed Ally, China in the Great War, Francis Wood and Christopher R. Nander would describe the contents of these demands like this. Quote, the first section related to German concessions in the Shangdun province, now in Japanese hands. The Chinese government engages to the, give full assent in all matters upon which the Japanese government may hereafter agree with the German government relating the disposition of all rights, interests, and concessions which by virtue of treaties and otherwise, Germany now possess in relation to the province of Shandong. China was not to lease land anywhere in the whole of the Shandong province or to any other nation to agree to open more cities in Shandong to trade and allow Japan to build a railway there. In section 2, since the Chinese government has always recognized the special position enjoyed by Japan in South Manchuria and Eastern Inner Mongolia, she was to hand over control of all the railways and all mining rights in the area and allow the Japanese free access to trade and the right to settle. Section 3 related to the Haiyamping Coal and Iron Company, a major industrial resource in Wuhan. This was particularly attractive to resource-poor Japan, which sought control as a joint concern, restricting any Chinese actions over the company and its significant associated mines. Will Section 4 forbade the Chinese to cede or lease to a third party any harbor, bay, or island along the entire coast of China? Now... <laughs> These were pretty hefty, but the Chinese were forced to sign the 21 demands, giving up essentially all of Manchuria to the Japanese and real power in Shandong. The key to all of this, though, and what would really come back to bite the Chinese, was that the Japanese insisted that the agreement remain completely secret, even within the Chinese government. Even without the 21 demands becoming common knowledge, in the country there were enough events that caused instability. 
One of these was the fact that in 1915 it became common knowledge that Yun Jing Kai planned to, to proclaim himself emperor during 1916. This set off a wave of fierce opposition, both just from the concept of having another emperor, but also because of how much money he planned to spend on crowning himself as emperor. The budget for the transition and ceremony was placed at around 30 million won. Well, this is at a time when the Chinese government was already running an 88 million won deficit. The most important opposition came from some of those regional armies that I mentioned earlier. These were especially strong in the southwest of China, areas like Yunnan, Sichuan, uh, Gisong, uh, where the armies began to take steps towards active rebellion. The situation deteriorated so quickly that Shikai uh, was forced to cancel his appointment as emperor, although he would end up dying just a few months later anyway from kidney failure. His death did not end uh, unrest around the country, but it at least put somebody else in control. Even with the mounting internal disconsent, when the United States broke off relations with Germany in early 1917, they called on other neutral countries around the world to do the same, and the Chinese government decided to answer the call. China would be the first country to respond with strong support to the calls of the United States, which was based primarily around the German U-boat campaign, even though the campaign itself did not greatly affect the Chinese. It would take the Chinese about six days to determine their exact statement around their relation with Germany. During this time, there would be many meetings with both government officials and civilian leaders. On February 9th, the announcement was finally made that China would sever all ties with Germany. The Germans were given a possible out by canceling the unrestricted U-boat campaign, which they of course did not do. Therefore, on March 14, 1917, the action was complete. This was not the declaration of war that would wait another five months until August, but it put China on the path to entering the war and represented the step where the Chinese decided that they would enter the war. Eventually, they just had to make it happen. The obvious question that we need to answer at this moment is why the Chinese wanted to join the war and what they hoped to gain from joining a conflict that was happening halfway around the world. This is an interesting question for all of these countries that joined the war who were highly unlikely to be directly involved with the fighting in Europe. From a historical perspective, the good news is that we have a pretty direct answer to this question for China, because they presented their request in writing to the Allies in March 1917. There were some economic requests like the postponement of the boxer indemnity payments for 10 years, during which the interest would be paused, more freedom for the Chinese government to set custom duties and tariffs, which the European countries had heavily controlled for decades, and greater control over the areas of foreign legations in Peking. Some of these were readily agreed to, like the cancellation of the boxer payments that were going to Germany and Austria, and this helped a bit but came nowhere close to what the Chinese wanted. There were then other items that the Chinese wanted to get out of the war, but there were serious problems with many of them. Territorial rights in Shandong, more domestic autonomy, and an increase in international prestige were high on the list. The biggest problem with the first two of these goals was that it would mean going against the wishes of Japan, which was something that honestly was just not going to happen. Japan had made every effort before and during the war to make sure that it had the advantage in any discussion of Allied policy in the Far East. Unfortunately, there was nothing that the Chinese could do to change this. This Japanese predominance was virtually guaranteed by the secret treaties signed by the Japanese and the Allied countries throughout the war, which the Chinese did not know about, just like nobody else 
knew about the 21 demands. While the possibilities for the Chinese to actually achieve their goals were limited, they did not know this at the time, and they continued to believe that the more they contributed to the war, the better their reward would be after. And in war, no contribution of an ally is greater than the contribution of military troops, and so that is the goal upon which the Chinese set their sights. In early September, the Chinese Prime Minister informed the French that China wanted to help the Allied military, and they were ready and willing to send hundreds of thousands of troops to Europe. All that they needed was the permissions of the Allied countries and a bit of money from the United States. The French were excited by this prospect, with Foch being a key supporter. He had been impressed by the Chinese laborers that had been active in France since 1916, calling them first-class workers, who could be made into excellent soldiers capable of exemplary bearing under modern artillery fire. While the French were more than willing to have Chinese troops on the Western Front, the other countries were less than thrilled at the prospect. There would be constant discussions among the Allies about what to do, but in China they continued to push forward with preparations. 40,000 soldiers were prepared for the trip, and a military mission was sent to France under the command of General Tang Zhilai, who informed the French that those 40,000 troops could be on their way immediately with just a little bit of money from America. The Chinese, with French backing, were in discussions with the United States to get a $25 million loan to fund this military expedition. It should be noted that the Americans were passing out money to the Allies in absurdly large quantities, so that $25 million sum was not crazy, it, but it still did not happen, and the reasons would be rooted in the viewpoints of the Japanese and the British. The Japanese were secure in their position in late 1917. During the first months of the year, they had signed secret treaties with the British, French, and Russians, although I guess that last one wouldn't turn out to mean very much. In these treaties, the Japanese had managed to get arrangements from the other countries that they would support Japanese territorial ambitions in Shandong and the German Pacific Islands. With these agreements in place, Japan did not in any way oppose the Chinese joining with the Americans in declaring war in 1917. In fact, Japan hoped that in supporting the Chinese in this entry, the Japanese could gain some favor with the Americans. However, when it came to Chinese military involvement in the war, the Japanese were firmly against it. Such an expedition from China would call into question Japan's contribution to the war, since they had not sent any soldiers to Europe. The primary way that the Japanese opposed the Chinese military plans was through the British, because the support of the British was essential if the troops were ever going to actually get to Europe. The French ambassador in Tokyo would admit that the Japanese would never support the plan, but maybe if the British did, they would come around. He would say in a note that, I'm afraid that Japan will not welcome it, and it would be opportune if our demand was at least supported by England. The support of the British would be a hard item to obtain. Officially, the British would claim that they did not believe that the Chinese involvement on the Western Front would be worthwhile, and an evaluation that was, as always, heavily couched in racism. For example, one British officer would state that, quote, The French are embarking on a policy of wasting Allied tonnage for which they will receive no military return, whatever. No one, from the exception of our military attaché in Peking, has ever suggested that even the best Chinese troops could stand shell fire on the Western Front for five minutes. The French are becoming too fertile of ideas. In view of the fact that they are more or less dependent on us for tonnage, they are moving rather fast. 
There were many other reasons for the British resistance, relations with, the, with Japan, some legitimate shipping concerns, and then also the matter of British prestige was involved. To put it bluntly, to bring Chinese troops over to the Western Front would be to admit both Western weakness and to the Chinese that they were worthy and they were able to fight on the same level as the Europeans. The British colonial policy in the region, built around the superiority of the Europeans, would be too damaged by this. Because of this resistance from the British and the Japanese, no military expedition would be sent to Europe, but not for lack of trying by the Chinese themselves. While they were denied the right to make a military contribution in the last year of the war, the Chinese had made another contribution since the middle of 1915, and this contribution had come in the form of laborers. From 1915 to 1918, around 150,000 Chinese workers would be sent to Western Europe, where they would work behind the front at the direction of the British and the French. Somewhere between 3,000 and 10,000 of these workers would die during this period. There would also be around 200,000 workers sent to Russia, where their fate was far worse, being stranded by the revolutions. In all of these cases, the Chinese workers would do good work and make real sacrifices for the Allied war effort, sacrifices that would be, be denied during the Paris Peace Conference. You may be wondering how these workers got to Europe. After all, China was a neutral country for most of the war, and for most of the time that these Chinese laborers were in Europe. Well, it was a process that began in June 1915. At that time, China's finance minister proposed that the Chinese could send 300,000 military laborers to France. The original vision was to provide at least a third of these men with military weapons, but this part of the plan would be scrapped because it would have violated China's neutrality. The concept of using Chinese laborers around the world was not completely crazy because it was already happening, with Chinese laborers being present in the British West Indies, Cuba, the United States, Canada, Australia. These workers were often somewhat derogatorily called coolies, which draws from the Chinese word coolie, which means hard labor. While the Chinese government was allowing the Allies to recruit these workers, it should be noted that they were not conscripted or enslaved or anything like that. They were paid for their work, and well by the standards from where they came from in China. However, they had little ability to get assistance from their government, and they were basically entirely at the mercy of the British and the French, an arrangement that would prove problematic when the war ended. Since the workers were paid and not conscripted, they had to be recruited, and this was primarily done in the Shandong province, although other areas were also used for recruitment. Most of the men brought into the labor corps were poor farmers that were hoping for a better living, and there were also some who possessed skills like carpentry or blacksmithing, but the vast majority were unskilled. They would sign contracts either with the British or the French, with varied in details, but not in the basics. For the French, the contracts had a term of five years or till the war was over, with some statement about benefits, like getting all the same holidays as French workers with the addition of Chinese National Day. The pay was not great by modern standards, but for the time it was pretty good. For example, there is a story of a teacher who joined up, claiming that he wanted to see the world and that the pay was better than what he was getting as a teacher. After the recruits had signed their contracts, they would be taken to training camps and medically examined and also inoculated against smallpox. They would then wait for shipping to become available, during which time they would drill, sometimes for weeks. Before they left China, every man had an, a brass identity disc attached to his arm, a process completed by a blacksmith so it could not be easily removed. 
This was done due to the fear that the workers would get to Europe and then attempt to escape. Once the shipping arrived in China, the route that they would take depended on whether they were contracted with the British or the French. The British used the route that involved going through the Suez Canal and then the Mediterranean. This route was dangerous, with U-boats patrolling the area in large numbers. This resulted in hundreds of deaths, with just one ship in February 1917 accounting for 752 dead Chinese when it was attacked by a U-boat near Malta. The British used a safer route, taking the workers east to Canada and then across the country by train, and then moving them by ship to Western Europe. When the laborers were brought over to Europe, the general idea was that they would only be given the most menial tasks, trench digging, querying, railway construction, loading and unloading of cargo, stuff like that, and these would make up the majority of the work that they would be given during the course of the war. This meant that for most of the war, the various skills that were possessed by the workers were completely ignored, and so men who possessed unique skills were given the same work as everyone else. This did begin to change near the end of the war, but by the end, most of the men with specialist skills would finally be combed out and given special tasks that took full advantage of these skills. All of those tasks were critical to the Allied war effort. After all, you can't move a million men in millions of artillery rounds without good railways, good roads, and people on both ends to load and unload the goods. British Foreign Secretary Balfour would say that, quote, The time has come to consider the very important political effect which the sojourn of some 100,000 Chinese in France is likely to have on British prestige in northern China. By raising the standard of village living and the knowledge of a wider life, we shall be rendering a great benefit. But the most important compliment is the enlisting of the educated portion of the Chinese personnel who will become preachers and exponents of the British fairness and efficiency. Overall, the treatment of the workers was acceptable, for reasons that Balfour just explained. The British instituted a policy of keeping the Chinese as separate as possible from the rest of the army, due to the concerns that they would experience a very large amount of racial discrimination from the other troops. Those in French employ had a different experience, because instead of being kept in centralized units and camps, they were distributed around the country to various areas to work in agriculture or in manufacturing. Once they had been placed in those areas, they could generally move around the local town or village quite freely, but they were not allowed to travel anywhere by train. In general, in all of these cases, the laborers could experience, would experience a life of long, hard hours, food of varying quality, and for those working near the front, a constant risk of death. Speaking of death, the true statistics on the number of Chinese that died due to enemy action during the war will probably never be known. It is very likely that the number is higher than 3,000, but probably below 10,000, but accurate records are non-existent. We do know that those who were wounded or took sick were well cared for. On the British side, they had their own hospital, which was led by Dr. Doffley Gray, who had been a medical officer with the British legation in Peking before the war. Overall, I would say that the laborers were treated okay at best during their time in Europe, but it was not a great life, And but they were treated all right. That's the best I can say about the British and the French. When the war ended in November 1918, something interesting happened. The Chinese were not sent home. The contract that the Chinese had signed had specified that they could be employed for up to six months after the war ended, but it did not exactly specify what the end of the war was. 
The Armistice meant an end to the fighting, but it was not technically the end of the conflict, which would not happen until the Treaty of Versailles was signed. This left the Chinese in something of an awkward situation. The British and French wanted to keep them around as long as possible as a source of cheap labor, and there were certainly enough work for them to do with reconstruction happening. There was also those within the Chinese labor corps that wanted to stay, generally those that had been elevated to leadership positions. On the other side, the Chinese could see all the armies around them demobilizing and the fighting stopping, and of course, they wanted to go home. However, there, will, there would still be around 50,000 Chinese workers in the Western Front at the end of 1919, and this was actually much lower than it had been just a few months before, because in the last two months of the year, both the British and the French had made a concerted effort to repatriate as many of the workers as possible. It would actually be years before all of the Chinese had left France, with workers still being employed well into the 20s to, scar to carve inscriptions on tombstones. Several thousand would end up staying in France for life, where they would seek to start new lives, generally having already married French wives. As I mentioned earlier, the Chinese had joined the war with specific goals, and at the Paris Peace Conference they hoped to achieve these goals by cashing in some of the chips that they had earned with the Allies due to their contributions to the conflict. However, things did... well, it didn't go exactly as planned. And the deviations from the plan would begin with the actions of the Chinese themselves. When it came time to send a Chinese delegation to Europe, the question of who would go was not easily determined. In 1917, the southern provinces of China had set up their own government under the leadership of Sun Yat-sen. This meant that when it came time to send representatives to Paris, there would be two delegations, one from each group of Chinese leaders. Sending two different and competing delegations to the conference did nothing to help the Chinese. It caused more confusion, and caused the two delegations to waste time arguing with each other. There were some unifying features of their requests, though, and most of these were based around the 14 points and President Wilson, in whom the Chinese placed a lot of faith. The exact actions and discussions at Versailles will be covered in later episodes in pretty good detail. So here I will just say that things did not go at all well for the Chinese. The secret treaties that the European countries had made with Japan, which included giving them control of Shandong and general autonomy in their actions in Asia, were there. To make the situation worse, while the Chinese could not have known about the secret treaties between Japan and the other countries, the secret treaties between the Chinese government and the Japanese were also not widely known, including among members of the delegation. The Japanese would then make sure that the correct people knew about these treaties at opportune moments. All of this resulted in the Chinese getting essentially nothing that they wanted from the Versailles Treaty. The situation was so bad and so disappointing that the Chinese delegates refused to even sign the treaty. When the news of the treaty reached China, and with it news that the Japanese would continue to occupy so much territory in mainland China, it sparked massive demonstrations on May 4th, 1919. This began at Peking University, and it became known as the May 4th Movement. The May 4th Movement and its role in bringing together those that wanted large changes in China would be instrumental in setting the course of China in the post-war world. It will also be a topic for its own episode next year, so I won't dig in too much into post-war China right now. So in summary, China's involvement with the war can be summed up in one word. Disappointment. 
The war was supposed to be China's coming out party on the main stage of international politics. The contributions of the country to the war was supposed to allow it to gain recognition and power from European countries, but the country accomplished none of these goals. And instead, the Versailles Treaty would just reinforce the support of Japan and its expansionist policies in China, policies that would come to a head in the 1930s. It would also be the spark that would eventually light the fires of civil war in the country. The end of the war would also prove to be merely the beginning of domestic fighting that would continue almost unabated until the 1950s. This is Carl on his motorcycle. Let's ride till we run out of gas! And this is Carl off his motorcycle. Balsa wood is very different than teak. People confuse the two. On his motorcycle. Hey! Check out that view! Off his motorcycle. Let's do puzzles in the break room. On. Look at all that open road! Off. Look how long my fingernails are getting. You're better on your bike. Progressive helps keep you on it. Get a quote in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.